the Cthulhu are coming. Yeah. And you called it in the, the very first. I didn't call it Cthulhu. I would never call it Cthulhu. In episode one. I did call it Cthulhu. You Welcome to the edge of nowhere. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode 20 edition of Monster Lore Tour Paranormal Deep Dives from the Edge of Nowhere podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Carr, here along with my co-host in the Mork to my Mindy, Mr. Matt Ozero, a.k.a. The Moz. How are we doing today, Moz? No complaints. Episode 20, Moz. Wow. Yeah, we made it. Yeah. Look at that, 20. That's like, if 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 this podcast was a person who could almost drink yeah next episode we can take it to a bar we should do a bar episode for the 21st that's a great idea it's a terrible idea let's do it that's a terrible idea but it's a great idea you know what we need to do is an on location at chupacabra tap room about the chupacabra yeah yep that's one we could pull off or the bell witch at that uh there's a bell themed one down in cottonwood too oh yeah yeah that'd be cool yeah Oh, we should totally Belfry. start doing that. That's it. Uh, Bats in the Belfry. Yeah. yeah. Belfry Brewery. Yeah. That's a great idea. On location at breweries named for the monster we're doing the episode about. Yeah. Somehow connected in the name. That's brilliant. Yeah. I think it'd be fun. Chupacabra episode coming up. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll task Maz on that real quick. <laughs> Anyhow. Before we get going, got to do this bit. Uh, if all of you out there listening could just take a moment for us and hit those like, subscribe, follow, share, whatever other happy little buttons they have on the platform you're listening on, we would very much appreciate that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. And if you have a minute at some point to leave us a rating and a review, that would also be very much appreciated. Thank you, thank you again. Now let's uh, get back in properly into our probe saga here was that a bob ross comp thing you did there with the happy, happy little, little buttons. buttons yeah yes i was actually thinking of uh tesla's happy fun ball oh yeah that, of course podcast related yep. but yes happy little trees is also a, a, pr- a proper image to come into your brain there that's why it's a good image or know? rocky mountain bet spheres rocky mountain <laughs> bet spheres dr manhattan's though rocky mountain <laughs> bet spheres it's a very sp- specific specialty of wolfman puck these days one of his top dishes. Uh, there is a quick prerequisite for this one. If you haven't heard part two of this Alien Probe saga, which is episode 15, you probably want to go back and listen to that. It was a bit of a cliffhanger and leads right into this one. So if you haven't heard episode 15, click back now and give it a listen. We'll wait. You let, you let him hang him for a long time then. What's that? You left him hang for five episodes. Yeah, I didn't want to cram all this probe stuff oh, together. Right. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Understood. And, uh, you know, I'm going to do two more here, mm-hmm. and that'll wrap up the probes. 
and then I'll do something else before I do more spacey stuff. And nice. I, I'm trying to keep it varietyed yeah. for the audience. Well, I appreciate that. But uh, anywho, episode 15 focused primarily on Oumuamua and its apparent oddness in form with shape acceleration and whatnot and all seemingly kind of unnatural. We left off part two with the discovery of the second known interstellar interloper. This was a big moment. This was the piece of evidence the scientific community was waiting for to see if Oumuamua was as much an outlier as it seemed. This new interloper was discovered by a Russian engineer and amateur astronomer, one Gennady Borisov, hope I said that first name right, apologize, with a 65-centimeter telescope he built himself at home in Crimea. He had help from moose and squirrel. <laughs> I don't know. It's Ukraine, though. Crimea, that's... Yeah. That's one of those places they're fighting over. But seriously, though, this guy built himself his own telescope, a 65-centimeter telescope, and discovered the only second-ever discovered interstellar interloper. Nice. Isn't that cool? Nice. Well done. Does uh, he get mad cujos? It's too early. That's like I'll give him some mad cujos. Mad oh. cujos for Mr. Borisov. Woo-hoo. Ah, boy. But as with the Muamua, the speed at which this object moved was too fast for it to be bound by the sun's gravity, therefore proving it to be of interstellar origin. That's how we know. For discovering this object and proving its local status, it, oh, excuse me, for discovering this object and proving its non-local status, it was named after Mr. Borisov, designated simply as 2I slash Borisov. That would be the second interstellar slash Borisov. Nice. So he got... An uh, interstellar comet named after him and a Mad Cujo's award. I don't know which one's cooler, honestly. Yeah, double. But anywho, the first question on the scientific community's mind with the discovery of Borisov was, does it look like a Muamua? Does it have any of the same weird characters of shape and composition? What the scientists found when they observed 2I slash Borisov and the data collected by our telescopes was something that looked just like what we think of when we think comet. It had the nucleus with the gaseous cloud around it, the coma or tail streaking out of it away from the sun, and its motion tracked consistently with the effects of gravity forces present in our solar system. Tuai Borisov, although being from another star system, was a perfectly ordinary comet. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought we were, we, well, What? You just commented me here. <laughs> I thought we moved away from comet last time. Well, no, this is oh the f- new information. This might sound. Now, let me keep right. reading here because okay. this actually goes right into what you're saying. This might sound like a letdown. That's actually the next sentence in my notes, but the implications are actually far more profound than if it had resembled a muamua rather than a typical comet. This is like when we found the Wicked Witch of the West was really the Wicked Witch of the East. This Kinda, is just like that. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. but you see, if it had resembled a Muamua, and remember we had not yet discovered the existence of the uh, IM1 and IM2, the ones that actually fell to Earth and all that, it would have meant that a majority of interstellar objects, in fact, did not resemble the objects we have observed in our own solar system. This would have been a major scientific breakthrough it would have told us that there were things about the dynamics of the universe that we do not understand and probably would have led to a revolution in physics. Pretty big news. But 
With Borisov appearing as a perfectly normal comet, this meant that Oumuamua was indeed as odd as it seemed, a real-life interstellar interloping outlier. And the differences between these two interlopers doesn't stop at just their appearances. It goes far deeper than that. So let's get into it. First, we see Borisov is made up of typical cometary stuff, typical minerals and gases behaving as typical minerals and gases do. Oumuamua was made up of something we cannot explain. The only theory put forth to explain Oumuamua's highly unusual character is with implausible theories of things we've never witnessed and can't hold up to scientific scrutiny. Like my theories. Well, like the solid nitrogen, pure nitrogen. Pure nitrogen. Like yeah. it just the doesn't. Examples were bizarre. Yeah. They like, could exist, but they're implausible, like not impossible. Theoretically, yeah, sure, it could be a thing, but it, no. it like nature doesn't really allow for it. Right. Doesn't really allow for it. It would be weirder if it was a, it, it would be weirder if it was solid nitrogen, solid pure nitrogen than if it was aliens. Like, right. it would be weirder. Right. <laughs> you know? well, and that was what would explain why it didn't have the tail? Was that the... Right, because we wouldn't be able to, to see, see the tail. Yeah, right. But it didn't lose the mass, and right. like, none of it made sense. But then we see the differences in motion as well. Borisov aligning with the projected effects of our system's gravity, and Oumuamua accelerating at a rate noticeably different than would be the effects of our system's gravity. Recall from part two that the only other object we've ever seen behaving similarly to Oumuamua was a piece of man-made space junk we discovered long after abandoning it, abandoning it to the vacuum. Right there, what does that tell us, Moss? That Oumuamua right, but seems the, unnatural. We, right. But like I, it was made rather than created. We did hit on this part, though, didn't we? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. just we we need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we need to bring I'm, people I'm, back I'm to where we're showing how the 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 Borisov an actual right. comparison to what we know. It's what, as right. weird as we thought it was. Right. Basically, is what all this is showing. Nice. But uh, let's hear what Avi Loeb had to say about the naturally occurring Amuamua argument. Altogether, I would say that the suggestions made for natural origin. First of all, advocate for something we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And second, uh, if you look at the details, they, they have major flaws. Right. Major flaws. Something a scientist shouldn't ignore when analyzing new data. But maybe the weirdest difference between these interlopers appeared when scientists attempted to trace them back to their origins. Let's start with 2i Borisov's origin story. Scientists today know maths real good, Moz. They know maths real, real good. Real good at maths. Yeah. Accounting for the effects of gravity in our star system and tracking back 2i Borisov's initial trajectory, they were able to figure out the star system from which Borisov originated. It's pretty cool, right? I, I always like hearing stuff like that. So you're going to say... Makes me wish I could do calculus. <laughs> but the, but there's going to be a there's going to be a hiccup with finding how to get back to the Oumuamua, isn't there? Oh, you're getting way ahead, yeah. Moz, but you are a smart guy. You're, you're predicting the future. But let's hear about Borisov first. Here's Anton Petrov from his YouTube channel to tell us about it. It has a very high chance of coming from a nearby red dwarf binary system known as Kruger 60. So it tracks. I, I didn't follow all the Kruger movies. I think I stopped at 40. <laughs> Freddy's still out there somewhere, man. Somebody's <laughs> dreaming about him. But with Borisov, this tracks literally. 
We can track it back to where it came from. And how reliable is this hypothesis in light of all the data? Well, Kruger 60 is a binary red dwarf star system. This means it has two red dwarf stars orbiting around each other. But this system has a really cool structure. The stars do not follow the same orbital plane as you would normally see, but have perpendicular orbital paths. Sideways. Sideways. So to put it simply, try to put a picture of it in your brain here. The one with the larger orbital path follows a horizontal plane. So it's going, you know, left, right around the circle. Then the other one has a vertical plane going up down at one end of the other's horizontal orbit. So it's like circling one end of it as the other one goes around. Are they, do they interact like these planets? It's like tapping your head and rubbing yeah. your stomach at the same oh, time. <laughs> if you want to see a video representation of this, you can search for Anton Petrov 2i slash Borisov on YouTube, or I'll also be putting the link in the show notes as usual. Or download the old Red Dwarf BBC series. And that will have nothing not to do sure with that's going to help. But uh, this type of binary star system is actually known for being less stable than single star systems or even binary systems with parallel orbits and have a tendency to actually throw a lot of comets and asteroids out from their outer reaches because of the weird gravity shifts. So this makes Borisov make, make a lot of sense, actually. And how did this hypothesis hold up to further mathematical scrutiny? Here's Anton Petrov to bring us home. Approximately one million years ago, the comet known as C-2019 Borisov passed within about 5 to maybe 6 light years away from the star system known as Kruger 60. The actual speed of passage was only about 3.5 kilometers per second, which is actually really low. It's a similar speed to what you would expect um, from an object that was just kicked out of a star system. We've been kicked out of star systems. I get kicked out of pretty much every star system I go into. <laughs> But so all that data lines up, right? We know what Borisov is, where it came from. It's an interstellar interloper indeed, but, but it's going on a straight line. It's, it's, an, back or, and it's an ordinary it's comet. Go. It's just doing what gravity does. Yeah. There's nothing weird about it. So, how about a Muamua? Mm -hmm. This is what you were asking Plot about. Plot thickens, yeah. We know we have no idea what it was made of, why or how it moved the way it did, or just about anything else for that matter. But surely we can track it back to its source, at least figure out which corner of space it originated from, right? Mm -hmm. Well, not so fast, Moz. You knew it wasn't going to be that simple. Yes, you, yeah. you already asked. When they looked at the tracking data on Oumuamua, yet another piece of strange fell into the equation. There was no tracking Oumuamua back to its source. But I'm a little lost. What, what, why did we lose the trail well, yeah, that's what we're about to get into. Okay. This is actually a pretty complex part of it. This is because when it entered our star system, Oumuamua was at LSR. It was at LSR, Moz. Do you understand what this means? Uh, Neither did I when I first saw it. But here's how Avi Loeb describes it in his book, Extraterrestrial. Do you want to read this little quote for us here, Moz? Sure. All the stars in the vicinity of the sun are moving relative to one another. The average of their motions is called the local standard of rest. LSR. Amid the motion of all these stars, an object of the local standard of rest, or LSR, is comparatively still. And it is a comparatively rare occurrence. So it's that nothing in the universe is ever truly at rest, as everything is always moving in relation to other things at all times. But it's usually pretty close, right? I mean, L I mean, even if it's not the same stars the, are stay relative to each other well, the local standard of rest 
Mm-hmm. So it's basically not moving in comparison to the things around it. Right. And that's kind rare of. because let, usually let me read things this. are moving. I'm getting ahead. This is going to explain it much better than I'm going to do out of my brain. So it's that nothing in the universe is ever truly at rest as everything is always moving in relation to other things at all times. When you lay in bed at night, you might feel you're not in motion, but the earth is constantly spinning at about a thousand miles per hour hurling through space along its orbital trajectory at about 16,000 miles per hour. And our star is moving at about 45,000 miles per hour relative to LSR for our region of space. So maybe when you have the spin monsters, you're actually closer to LSR. You're actually combating. You might be, actually. That's That's a good side trail. I thought you were going to make me (laughs) groan there, but that's actually a really good good, uh, point. But anywho, we are constantly spinning through space like an out-of-control gyroscope, so good luck ever actually being still. There's something to keep you up at night. But when something is at relative rest to the other bodies around it, or more accurately, is moving so as to seem stationary relative to the collective motion of the bodies around it. That's unusual. In this case, a muamua within our galactic neighborhood, it appears to be sitting still. This is LSR, and it is very unusual. So, so it might be, okay, go ahead. I'm going to explain all this for you. Yeah. Now, when we find a body at LSR, our super fancy maths suddenly become quite useless to us. You see, without an initial velocity above LSR, accounting for the effects of local gravity on interstellar objects entering our system essentially equates out to zero. There is no way to track the original path of the object. We have no oh, trajectory to follow. it's stationary. We have no trajectory to follow it back. So it didn't move anywhere. We moved away from it. It had no outside momentum, outside average local gravity. I so relate to that, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Mars can sit very still. But it was just sitting there. It was waiting for our star system to slide on by and pull it in with its with our gravity. Wow. Just floating out there in deep space waiting. So how did the interaction with Oumuamua in our star system go? Here's a quote from Avi Loeb's book to describe it. You want to read this for us, Moz? Sure. Oumuamua was occupying the LSR, or at least it was before it accelerated. Around the time that it encountered our sun, it went from sitting still, relative to the average motion of the stars in our neighborhood, including our own, to moving away from us. Thanks to the kick it received from the sun's gravity, it was knocked out of LSR. As a consequence, Oumuamua was broken out of LSR and sent on a path along which it would, like a tennis ball hit by a racket, speedily depart our solar system. Oumuamua's being at LSR was peculiar. Consider that only one in every 500 stars is as still within the LSR frame as Oumuamua was It was before it was sideswiped. Our own sun, for example, is moving at about 45,000 miles per hour relative to this frame, about 10 times faster than Oumuamua was moving before the sun kicked it away from the LSR. Okay, and as Avi Loeb said, it is a comparatively rare occurrence. Most things in interstellar space are moving quite a bit faster than LSR due to their initial expulsion from their home system and the relatively low friction of flying through the space between star systems. So, Looking, so when the bouncer threw me out at a, and I went down the <laughs> stairs, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm trying to bring it back to Well, it's like, you know, examples. Voyager has left our system and is, head, is out in intergalactic space now 
is just going to keep on going because yeah. there's nothing stopping it. You know, and when Newton's it gets driving. to where it's going, you'll be able to track its path. We can't do that with a muamua. We set the trajectory in a way. The sun passing yeah. by. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. So looking again at 2i Borisov, it had a relatively low speed when entering our star system, but still noticeably above LSR. This data also jived with the findings of its origin origin star system, the red dwarf systems, as I said, have a tendency to eject a lot of the objects from their outer reaches, their own personal Oort cloud, if you will, mm-hmm. and that their relative gravity due to the small mass of the stars and their weird perpendicular alignment means that objects don't need much of a push or an initial exit velocity to exit the system and journey through interstellar space. So again, nothing weird about Borisov being slow for an inter- intergalactic object because it wouldn't have gotten as big of a push as most. So once again, all the data on 2i Borisov all lines up with physics, making it more commonplace, which makes a muamua all the more suspect. Yeah, but the, we have a small n. These are the only two we found, so it is a we don't have a ton to compare it to. Obviously, correct. But, 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 st- but statistically, still right? You would, one does what it expects, and the other does nothing that it right. expects. And and we expect to start finding a lot more of these things in the future. But that's going to be a focus of a later section of this. So we'll talk about that in a little while. Nice. Uh, So what would the other options be for a muamua to be an explicable natural object? For instance, could a star system moving at above the LSR somehow eject an object that after departure was at LSR? I don't know. Trying to cover all the bases here. I didn't don't know either. This is why we research here at Monster Lord. You're looking at me when you ask that. I have no idea. I just like this is like it's like the question when you turn you're going speed of light and you're turning headlights on. It's almost like that. Yeah, it kind of is. Again. I have no idea. This is all above my pay grade, but thankfully I read Avi Loeb's book and I'm going to tell you what he has to say about it. It's also possible that a Muamua came from one of the 99.8% of stars that are in significant motion relative to the LSR. But for that to happen, the ejection maneuver would have to be a haymaker rather than a nudge and a precise one at that. The kick would eject an object from a star system, not at LSR, in a way that resulted in the ejected object being at LSR means a blow exactly equal and opposite to the velocity of the parent star. It would have to be a very precise strike at a very precise velocity. The blow would need to perfectly cancel out the home system's movement to produce an object at the LSR. Imagine the challenge of a surgeon attempting a delicate operation with a crude instrument like a hammer, basically, is the way he said it. Could this be set to whatever velocity the, the incoming star system is? So, in order to make, so take our system, for example. Our star is moving at 45,000 miles per hour relative to LSR. Something would have to come in and say hit cancel that out exactly something comes into the Oort cloud and hits one of those big old asteroids big earth killer asteroid kind of asteroid sitting out there in order for it to eject it from the system and leave it at lsr it would have to hit at exactly 45 the forty-five thousand miles an hour that the sun's moving in exactly the opposite direction that the sun is moving in it's like the magic bullet with the kennedy assassination yeah, yeah. like it the the you can't account for that in nature like it's 
you're more likely to win the lottery three times in a row. Yeah. You know what I mean? For that to happen naturally. Right. Anyway. So again, it's plausible. <laughs> if you did it on but, purpose, but that's a not. different thing. You'd have to have some seriously advanced technology to do something like that on purpose. But it's like, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's an infinite universe. Anything can happen. So it's not like it's totally impossible, but at the same time, for this to be the first ever one that we observe. But we came to the probe. <laughs> the probe exactly. That's a great point. Let me continue on from there. That gets us back into what I'm talking about. So our Oort cloud can actually eject objects at LSR. Way out on the fringes of the sun's effective gravity field, some objects can sometimes get just enough of a push to release them from the sun's gravity, but only just enough to be at LSR after breaking its bond with the sun. Avi Loeb describes this in his book, quote, Way out there, a mild nudge of less than 2,200 miles per hour, what an encounter with a passing star might provide, for example, could be enough to send an object on its interstellar way. So if a Muamua originated from an icy Oort cloud-like shell around a host system in the LSR, that could explain the object's velocity. Oh, so I was wrong. You can't do it at the Oort cloud. I guess it would be have to be hitting Mars, right. for my example, to work, because it's you got to be closer to the sun, have that gravity effect still. Anywho, see, Avi Loeb's proven, proven me wrong, even just by quoting him in my own notes. But again, <laughs> as with every attempt to explain a muamua as a naturally occurring object, this theory doesn't hold much weight, Avi Loeb explains. But this doesn't explain a muamua being a dry rock. No matter how you look at it, the dynamical origin of a muamua that it was at LSR before encountering our solar system is extremely rare, and it's all the rarer given our need for a naturally occurring object dry enough to produce no visible outgassing when it deviates from a trajectory explicable by the gravitational force of the sun alone. That's actually kind of a recap of what we've been saying. It's just not adding up though, Moss. The case for a Muamua being a naturally occurring space rock like a muamua itself just doesn't hold water. Yeah, we established no water. You see what I did there? That yeah. was a joke. Yeah, okay. That's my nerd joke. I was going to make that joke if uh, you weren't purposely making that joke. There you go. So what now? What hypothesis would allow for all the anomalous behaviors and characteristics of a muamua all at the same time? What theory would bring all this data into a nice balanced equation? There is an option that fits this mold, something that if you apply the right hypothesis could explain a muamua in its entirety. See, I'm trying to debunk this as being unnatural. Right. Trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Can't do it. Here is how Avi Loeb explains this hypothesis in his book. A muamua was a manufactured object specifically designed to be at the LSR. Perhaps long, long ago. A muamua was not junk but extraterrestrial technological equipment built for a distinct purpose. Perhaps it was something closer in intent to a buoy. A muamua was like a buoy, a baba buoy, baba buoy, resting in the expanse of the universe, and our solar system was like a ship that ran into it at high speed. That's crazy. I mean, that's what we're saying, though. Yeah, it's just like what you said before. We, we ran into it. It didn't run into us. We ran into it. It reminds me of something. What's that? Do you remember the the Romulan episode with Balance of Terror with Star Trek? So they, they have the neutral zone is lined by these buoys. Right, right. And it's Federation space and Romulan space, and the treaty was set up 
hundreds of years earlier or something. Yep, and you can't cross the buoys. Yeah. Those buoys are at LSR. We crossed the buoys. Yeah. But, but this wasn't the same as that because they but, didn't. But let's let's look at this, what he just said. Let, let's let this specifically sink in for a minute. I'm going to quote this again. Technological equipment built for a distinct purpose, yeah. something closer in intent to a buoy. I mean, what does that mean, Moz? What, what do buoys do? They, I, they mark lanes of passage. That's what I'm talking about. They hold the line on traps. Yeah. They're like mines in the ocean. They're a they're, a, they're one of those little bobbers when you've got a little fish hook. Yeah, they're, somebody's fishing for something. Yeah, this becomes all the scarier when you look at the relative approaches that Borisov and Oumuamua took relative to the Earth. Here is a SETI scientist describing the relative approaches these two objects took to our planet. Borisov was about twice as far away from both the sun as the Earth is and from the Earth as the Earth is from the sun. This was never anywhere near us. Oumuamua, the other one that I mentioned, came in quite a bit closer to the Earth, was actually not seen until after close approach. This is a bit frustrating because even if you are observing near the sun on the sky, you can't look right next to the sun when you're observing from the ground. And so you miss things when they're coming from that direction, which is a big section of the sky. So this freaks me out, Maz. Not only was Oumuamua inexplicable physically, but it was found to be bobbing around deep space like a buoy just waiting for us to show up. And then when it does finally enter our star system, it just so happens that it takes a trajectory at the Earth that came straight out of the sun from our perspective so that we didn't even realize it was there until it was well past us on its way out of the solar system. Too late to get a good look at it. As they say, a good coincidence takes a lot of planning, and this is one hell of a coincidence, don't you think? Wow. That's, is, is, is this where you say, oh, should we be afraid yet? Is it time to panic yet, <laughs> Is it time to panic? I, I'm feeling like it's time to panic. <laughs> like Maybe in 40 years when, when the, the alien crafts actually arrive, maybe that's the time. But yeah, maybe a little bit of panic. Yeah. Maybe. So let's add it all up. To serve man. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have their... Let's bear with me here for a minute. Oh, boy. So what if we're the Wolfman Puck segment of another star system? Like, they're actually... Like, they just checked us out and said, yeah, I want to eat, eat that hairy dude with the Portheria. Whoa. <laughs> That's very cosmic, man. <laughs> we become the... Whoa. We actually become a segment in our own podcast from the other side. Yeah. We yeah. are the cryptid yeah. in the Wolfman Puck segment then. Yes. So I'm actually. How would they serve us? So I actually get to kind of be Bigfoot in a way. If they're Romulans, they'd serve us with Romulan ale. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. wouldn't be bad. I'd probably taste pretty good with Romulan ale. <laughs> I don't know if you'd taste good with anything, Ross. <laughs> Anywho. I'm uh, trying to sell it. Come on, guys. Pick me up. <laughs> what was I talking about? Okay, so back to Amuamua. Let's add it all up. Let's look at what we know of Amuamua. Here's a quick summation from Avilope. Quote, the data we confront tells us that a Muamua was a luminous, thin disk at the LSR. And when it encountered the gravitational pull of the sun, it deviated from a trajectory explicable by gravity alone. And it did so without visible outgassing or disintegration. 
That's ridiculous. That's yeah. all. When in you a put nut- it all together, that's, that's in ridiculous. the nutshell. That's yeah. the nutshell of everything. No, they determine it's not in a nutshell. I'll so, be low upset. Okay. <laughs> it's a little nutty though. A couple other things. Nougat. To, we said it's nougat. Oh, nougat. Nougat prison. <laughs> a couple other things to touch on, and then we'll make our determination on a muamua once and for all. One is size. A muamua was a relatively small object for a space-bound chunk of anything, really. Uh, here is a SETI scientist describing the relative sizes of Borisov and Oumuamua. Oumuamua was about 100 meters wide. The nucleus at the center of Borisov is about 500 meters, so a third of a mile across. These are not very large objects by the standards of asteroids, but there's more small things than large things. So this balancing act of rare or large interstellar objects might be easier to see, but they don't come by very often versus the really small things you just can't see at all. So you see, the nucleus of Borisov was as much as five times more massive than a Muamua. And a Muamua is actually on the small end of the size range of objects we even look for. If it had been somewhat smaller than it was, we may never have detected it at all. How many of those do you think are out there flying around? So there could be a lot. We just happened to see one. Yeah, we'll get into more of that later. And what of a Muamua's strange acceleration? It was specifically accelerating at a rate inversely proportional to its distance from the sun. Do we know any sort of craft that would accelerate in this way outside of the straight influences of gravity? I'd have to think about that. As a matter of fact, there is such a craft, Maz, and it matches the physical dynamics of a muamua as we know them to be. What is this type of craft, you ask? A Prius. A light sail. Ah. And what do we know about light sails from episode one? of this probe series. It's a solar sail, basically. As Avi Loeb told us very plainly, nature doesn't make sails. We make sails, yeah. Or they make sails. Sails have to be built. They are not created. What we have seen here is an artificial extraterrestrial craft. So it's using the photons of the sun in sail form to take off. But we didn't see any... We well, didn't see any sails. Like obviously, when it was leaving, we d- it didn't. Sh- the structure didn't change. Well, right. That's the thing: is that the shape didn't change, the mass didn't change. It wasn't gassing anything. I'm just saying, from a solar sail, I'm envisioning like from back in the cosmos when I first heard this explained. It is uh-huh. like a sail. It's very. It, it. That's why it's called that. Yeah. It's. It's very thin. It, mm-hmm. it is very much like a sail, but it, it has the reflective side that you point towards the sun, mm-hmm. and the light actually pushes you right. Because of the, but I'm just saying, power. wouldn't we see the structure of that change if there was a sail on it on the way out? I'm just asking. I don't know. Well, it was spinning and stuff, right? It wasn't, you know, going just straight. But I mean, the, the measurements we got with, if you go back and listen to the previous episode, it was very disc. It was very thin, wide. Oh, so it could have just shaped. changed. It could have just changed. Just yeah, it's very structured. Just it just alters itself to be catch all the photons and, and head out. Could have been very right. thin. Just its angle to the sun got right that it was like, right. oh, I'm getting some wind. Yeah. Getting wind in the sail because gotcha. the sun just hit it and it yeah. and it took off. Nice. At an acceleration rate that a light sail totally explains. Right. The inverse proportional to, you know, the accelerating inverse to the distance from the sun, basically. That's exactly how that works. So, like, this, this light sail actually... Kind of explains explains it. what this might be. But uh, before we move on with the more factual stuff, 
I want to get into what it might mean for us if Oumuamua actually was an operational alien probe of some kind. Avi Loeb referred to Oumuamua as potentially being some kind of buoy. There is reason to hypothesize, as we will get into later, that a civilization capable of launching such a probe to other star systems would not just send out one of these probes, but many. Here's how Avi Loeb explains it. You want to take this one, Moss? Yes. A vast network of such buoys could act as a communication grid or could be used as a tripwire, an alert system triggered when one of them was knocked out of LSR. In that spirit, perhaps its creators wanted to disguise its and their spatial origins, putting an object at LSR effectively camouflages who put it there. Why? Because math and a little knowledge of an object's trajectory is sufficient to trace the object's origin back to the launch pad. So what this tells us is, if a Muamua was placed purposely in LSR on an intercept course with our star system, it was done so in order to hide its origination point. And if it was collecting data on Earth as it passed through, it made no obvious attempt to make contact with us directly. This could imply some things. One thought is that it is an early probe, and some conjecture that if there is an alien species out there surveilling us, that they would gather as much information about us as they could before making direct contact. Some scientists even hypothesize that the first direct communication we receive from an alien species will come in one of our own languages and be readily understandable. That's frightening. This gives the feeling that these creatures are of a peaceful sort. Ow. But imagine they would... I haven't got any Romulan ale for Christmas yet. But imagine the edge they would have on us, Moss. We would just be discovering their existence, and they would already know enough about us to send us meaningful messages in our own languages. Yeah. Like, that is that is a very scary thought. Or it, it still comes back to me. It just seems like the passage, the boundary, the, the Romulan neutral zone that we crossed yeah. into it. Yeah. I mean, either or. I, it's either... The theory is they set these things up, but usually it's you do Cthulhu. that on the edge of your territory. The we just entered the zone of the that Cthulhu. That would be bad. That would be bad. But there's a much scarier thought that can come out of this hypothesis. This is going to keep getting worse for a minute. Worse than Cthulhu? What if the creators of Oumuamua hit its origins purposely? What if they were looking to scope us out in a way that would cloak the probing as well as the origins of the probe? This, to me, speaks of a paranoid species one that yeah. would expect us to behave like them. Yeah. And if they think that means they have to hide their location from us, then we can only imagine what horrors they might bring when they find out we're here. Which they just did. The Romulans are time coming. to panic. It yet. might be the Klingons. That's yeah. even worse. Yeah. It gives well, it gives one pause to think. Yeah. It's a nut side trail. <laughs> yeah. Which is worse? Romulans or, or Klingons? Klingons? Join us for the side trail. That is not the side trail. With this in mind... It gives one pause to think that the first ever man-made crafts are now crossing into interstellar space on their way to unknown regions of space. As Avi Loeb says, quote, Consider as well that any intelligence with a grasp of math and a good map of the universe could trace back to Earth any of the interstellar ships we've launched from our planet's surface. They know we're here, moms. Mm -hmm. Scary thought if you look at it right. Guess it's a good thing that it will take them a really long time to actually get anywhere 
Uh, but enough of the scary thought stuff. Is, is that true? Like they could tell the solar sail would take so much longer to get to the nearest uh, star system of interest? Or can this thing just keep accelerating and we it could be there already? Um, a solar sail, if you angle it right and put the right light behind it, can get going really fast. Mm. Um, but like the Voyager leaving our system, it's not... Yeah. A, Compared to the other things out there, it's going really slow. Like, it's going to take a long time for it to really get to another system or anything. I have a theory we're going to get a probe that we're going to pass Voyager and, like, pick it up on the way. Like, just get that. Just just, come on. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Actually, I've heard scientists say that. That in, good theory, you know, good in 30 part. years, we might have something passing the Voyager yeah, on its on its way out there. Yeah. Because yeah. we're just going to get so much faster so fast. It will be called and Voyager we're actually, then, though. We're actually going to get into that in the next episode, I think, Dang. is where most of that stuff comes up, where we become the aliens probing the universe. That That's nice. That's going to be the next episode. If we make it that long. If we make it that far. But anywho, uh, I'm going to get away from the scary stuff for now and get back in to the uh, actual realities of this thing for a minute. So for another take on the issue, Avi Loeb has conjectured in the past that a Muamua was probably a piece of space junk, but that it was definitely not of natural origin still. It was manufactured and that it was specifically a light sail type of craft. It's hard at this point to argue about the manufactured origins of a Muamua with all we've gone into. All we can do is hope that Avi Loeb is right that it was just basically a derelict ship, some piece of alien flotsam, and simply stumbled into our system and inadvertently grabbed some acceleration from our star. A long time ago in a SpaceX company far, far away. (laughs) Who knows? It could have been out there for billions of years, you know what I mean? But for humanity's sake, I hope that's more the case than what we were talking about before. But so now that we have a determination of sorts anyway on the unnatural nature of a muamua, Let's look at the nature of this encounter through a wider scope. How likely is it that our first contact with aliens would come through us detecting one of their probes in our relative vicinity? Fair question, right? See their probes before we see them? Mm-hmm. Is that a possibility? And how likely would these probes be to be using light sails, as is the hypothesis for a muamua at this point in our deep dive, as their method of propulsion? Light sails is going to be how we get to the stars, Mm -hmm. at least at first. It is more than likely that an encounter similar to a muamua would be what our first contact with an advanced alien species would look like. It's really kind of how we would picture it. I thought the Vulcans land and they talked to, was that from Cochrane? Well, that's only once we hit warp, though. Oh, okay. If if those guys were paying attention, if they hadn't had the war and lost all their, their... sky viewing abilities they probably would have seen some of that stuff before him but there are a couple of reasons why it's believed that this is the case with the muamua so let me ask you something are you familiar with breakthrough starshot project moz is that like the uh starbucks uh app kind of what i was talking about well what what if i told you that we humans right now as we speak are working on a project to deploy light sail based probes to other star systems and that we could be getting pictures of these other star systems sent back to earth by these probes within just a few decades this is exactly what breakthrough starshot is all about nice let me tell you about it alpha centauri is the closest star system to our own 
And within this star system, orbiting around a small red sun, the third sun in the system known as Alpha Centauri C, is a planet known as Proxima B. Alpha Centauri C is also known as Proxima Centauri as it is the closest sun to our own at about 4.24 light years away. And Proxima B is thought to be an Earth-like planet with liquid water on the surface, a place where life is thought to be likely. Proxima B is now the newest target for humans' first interstellar journey. The problem is, as of right now, it would take way too long to get there. That's Let's, where Voyager's heading right now. Uh, it's not going that way. Is it? Am I wrong? No, I went out a different direction. Yeah. Why would they? Why was? What was Carl thinking? It wasn't anyway. about its final destination. It was about where it was going in our system, ah. and then it just ended up on that path. Gotcha. But let's look at a human's flight to Alpha Centauri system. So the fastest any human has ever gone is a record set by the crew of Apollo Ten moon missions. Their top speed was recorded at twenty-five thousand miles an hour, which is basically forty thousand kilometers per hour. That's super fast. It's crazy fast. Thinking of a person going that fast. That's circling the equator of the Earth in less than an hour. Oh, you're circling the equator, all right. So, you know how long it would take a craft at that speed to reach Alpha Centauri C? Damn long time. 114,500 years. There you go. <laughs> yep. That's, <laughs> and that's assuming we could build a ship that would carry enough stuff to keep people alive and everything for that long. You know, it's ridiculous. It's We may as well just do the thought experiment thing from episode six and seven and turn the earth into a spaceship all all on its own just take the whole thing with us but it is but anyway oh i got an well. aho guano th- i got an aho guano theory for you all right well, we're ready for that save that for the end but no okay so we're not doing it that way so scratch the human flight idea at least until we figure out that warp drive we've been talking about looking at you u.s navy Now let's look at the potential of mechanized flight to another system. Unmanned, mechanized flight. Again, with what we have already deployed into space, how long would it conceivably take one of our probes to reach Proxima B? Fastest thing we have is the Parker Solar Probe. It's going about 330,000 miles an hour, 531,000 kilometers an hour. Traveling at those speeds, we could reach Proxima Centauri in about 8,620 years. It's a hell of a lot better, mm-hmm. but it's still way too long. You're still you know? need bathroom breaks. Yeah, you know? yeah, like it's just not practical of a mission length. So this project, Breakthrough Starshot, is all about developing light sails or solar sails to change this. So what exactly is a light sail? We're going to get into that right now. The first pioneer into this scientific concept was Robert L. Forward. Nice. His last name was Forward. Like, what? How perfect is that? The most forward-thinking guy. His (laughs) name's Forward. In 1985, he released plans for a whole new type of spacecraft. We're going to read from the Aperture YouTube page on what it was all about. I'm going to have you read this one, Maz. But there will be a link in the show notes if anyone wants to go and watch the whole video. They had music and stuff in the background. I wasn't sure if I could splice the audio for this one, so we're just going to read it. But uh, explain this one to us, Moz. Well, I think Forward was named after 10 Forward, the bar on the Enterprise under Picard. So that's just an... Or was, should I add that to my Aho Guano? Or was the bar named for him? That yes. would actually make a lot of sense. <laughs> that would make a lot of sense. 
Yeah, more in the direction the guy. I it's agree. on deck 10, and it's named after the guy who created I the like light it. sail. I like that it. makes total sense. Exactly. Uh, the craft was known as Star Wisp and was theorized to be a 100-meter-wide carbon fiber probe that would be powered by microwave lasers in orbit. The total craft would only have a mass of about 1.08 kilograms, not much more than one liter bottle of soda. The microwave lasers would propel the spacecraft up to a speed of about 10% of the speed of light, or about 30,000 kilometers per second. This is effective, but would still take over 40 years to reach Proxima B. Is this like, are they doing the, like the Mentos and the Mountain Dew thing? Is this the same? <laughs> is that what they're doing? <laughs> and so that, you take that a Coke bottle and you drop <laughs> in the, the Mentos, Mentos and then you point and it and at Proxima, Proxima C. <laughs> <laughs> I take a lot of soda. You got to get a soda That's stream. A you you got, have to get your own soda you stream. You can't compress a liquid is yeah. the problem there. Yeah. But anywho, so we got it down to 40 years there. That's not bad comparatively at all from 8,600, right? But it's still a long time to be plummeting through deep space between the stars. But that was in 1985, Moz. And we all know how far we have advanced in our technology since then particularly in the form of miniaturization. That 1.08 kilogram Coke bottle sized module in 1985. This is 2023. Can we do better now? Get these crafts to the Centauri's in even less time? In fact, we can. You knew we can. Or I wouldn't have been asking, yeah. right? Here's more from Aperture. Tell us what Breakthrough Starshot is bringing to the table. I'll read you this one. We've been referring to low-mass spacecraft as those with less than 50 kilograms of material or so. But Starshot plans to shatter that with ultra-low-mass nanocrafts weighing in at just grams. All of its computing processes, cameras, and communication devices will be stored within a small star chip on the craft. The sail that will propel the craft towards Alpha Centauri will be four meters in width and height, but only a couple hundred atoms thick. Rather than being powered by pure solar power, Starshot will be pushed via visible light lasers built back on Earth. A field of lasers producing a 100 gigawatt beam focused on a single Starshot craft could push it to 20% the speed of light in less than an hour. But do you get a carry-on with that, or is it just... I mean, it seems it's like just a sail with a little chip. It's gonna, That's all it it's is. It's going to be very difficult. The little, you remember the little, I have you know to bring those parachute fireworks where you launch it up and the guy comes parachuting back down? Yeah. It's going to be like one of those. But I need at least one book on this trip. I mean, come on. You don't get to go. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> 20 atoms thick. Yeah, I got it. Exactly. But there you have it, Moss. That puts us on pace to hit the Centauri's in only 20 years. That's With fully functional operations, including data collecting and camera capabilities, we could have data and images here on Earth of a star system 4.24 light years away in under 25 years from launch. That's amazing. Yeah. Isn't that wild? To put that staggering accomplishment in perspective, the Voyager probes launched in 1977 and just recently left our star system. Yeah. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, puts it in perspective. It will take them tens of thousands many tens of thousands of years to reach another system billions of years we have that number Voyager. down to 20 with this project 20 years to the centauri's that's actually impressive it took yeah. me longer to watch all the game of thrones you try reading the books <laughs> <laughs> that's quite the process but anyway we've we've come a long way here but we're not there yet 
But thankfully, there is a rich billionaire interested in getting all this developed. Uh, of course there so, is. So the project is most definitely underway, though. Sometimes that's what you need is the money guy. According to current projections, it shouldn't be more than 20 years before the technology is refined to the point that these crafts can be manufactured. So we could be looking at the culmination of this project. Who's the billionaire, though? I'll get to that in a second. But we could be receiving data directly from an alien world in a different star system within the next 50 years. Some, within a one life, one shorter lifetime for yeah. a human. Like, we're, we're that close now. In, like, a real way. Like, this is real stuff. But you may be asking at this point, is this really worth it? All this trouble for one little probe to one little watery planet. But it's much bigger than that in the end. Here is Aperture again to explain. Quote, Building a huge laser for one small spacecraft seems like a waste, right? Well, rather than just sending one craft to Alpha Centauri, Russian billionaire Yuri Milder, the lead behind the breakthrough initiatives, plans to send hundreds or even thousands of these crafts at a time. That's right, Moz. Once this technology is fully developed, we are going to be launching these little suckers all over the galaxy, looking for life anywhere we might think to find it. And the data is going to come back fast enough that scientists will see results on these far out, far away projects, not only in their own lifetime, but during the course of their career. This would be hugely groundbreaking in the scientific community. It would change our entire approach to how we look at the potentials of space travel and research. And in fact, this initiative and the discovery of three interstellar objects in a relatively short period of time has already changed the way in which we are searching the skies for alien life. We're already doing it different. But that's why they also think there'd be a a gazillion buoys because we want to do a million things and so would they. So there's a million buoys that they have and there's a million of these things we're sending out. Right. Which actually plays in to Avi Loeb's kind of final thought on the thing that we gave is that it it was, Oumuamua was one of those, but Mm -hmm. it was an old derelict one. Yeah. That's what just got lost in that space. We should all hope. Just like the Robinsons. (laughs) We should all hope that right now. (laughs) Warning, danger. But let's look at examples of how we're changing the way we look at the sky. SETI has come up with a new concept of how to watch the sky and funded the project with a recent Indiegogo campaign that raised over $100,000 for the cause. That's pretty good, right? I thought they were listening to the sky. They were more podcasters. Now they're watching the sky. Well, they use... Like how you like to tell people to watch our podcast? Yeah. <laughs> they're technically, they say they're looking, but they're really listening. See, I'm ahead of time. i am just been right. <laughs> you shouldn't correct me anymore. That's what we've discovered. But I'm going to have you read this from uh, their Indiegogo video to kind of tell us what it's all about here, Moz. We spent the last two years designing the ideal device for a practical all-sky survey. With novel optics and specialized processing, we can leverage off-the-shelf hardware to minimize cost while still being able to detect pulses shorter than a millisecond. With an array of these spread throughout the globe, we can monitor the entire night sky continuously for the first time ever. So this is the big thing in the new SETI and other types of related research, is looking at the whole sky all at once. So that becomes watching. Now that becomes (laughs) watching. (laughs) But now, instead of 
I'm going to air quotes for you, looking right. at one of billions and billions of stars in the perceivable billions galaxy. Billions and billions of stars in the galaxy. Right. Instead of looking at one at a time, SETI researchers are going to be able to record the entire sky at all times. Right. If there, are any, if there are other planets out there putting off signs of life, particularly life that has advanced technology, we will now be much better equipped to pick up those signals and see that we, in fact, are not alone in the universe. And, you know, they're going to have to get some really good AI developed to process all the data. Is this part of the satellite, must satellite network to do this, or is it different? Oh, no, no. Okay. This, that they're doing, it's a... Um, How do you get through the whole Earth? Oh, Musk, the, Musk is is sending stuff down. These guys are looking up. Yeah, but they could use... I'm just wondering... These if guys actually that. don't like what Musk is doing. That Starlink yeah. stuff is, yeah. is like blocking out a lot of the sky. Yeah. It's it's screwing with signals and stuff. It's so actually which billionaire is going to fight Musk next? Is that... The Russians, apparently, because ah, Yuri, yeah, Yuri yeah. Milder's got this going, so ah, we'll, we'll see which one wins that fight. Hmm. But anywho, uh, we are not just changing the ways in which we look for signs of extraterrestrial life, but also what signs we are looking for. In the past, this search has been focused on the study of planets, looking to see if they show any telltale signs of biological life or putting off any unnaturally occurring signals of any kind. But since the discovery of Oumuamua and a shift in the scientific mentality regarding the possibility of alien life, the focus has shifted away from searching the surface of planets and has turned to the depths of space itself. From other star systems to deep space to our own Oort cloud and even near-Earth objects, there are now theories that looking in any and all of these places may show us signs of alien existence, past or present. I'd, I'd love to say future there too, but I don't want to get too weird. A new field called astroarchaeology has come to be. How's that for a title? Astroarchaeologist. I, I need to go back to school and get one of those just so I can have that title. Indiana Jetson. But this new field brought with it a whole new philosophy of how to look at the sky. We are now searching within the confines of our own solar system for the remnants of ancient alien crafts in the form of mechanized probes. Because, you know, Oumuamua. From objects in the Oort cloud to the inner solar system, more and more scientists are beginning to look for non-natural objects all throughout local space. If you do find one, kids, bring it right to the nearest pawn shop. Don't call the Smithsonian. <laughs> don't, don't call the Smithsonian. <laughs> call Carl Sagan. We are, or call Avi Loeb, actually. He's the new Carl Sagan. I, I was guess, thinking right? those Vegas pawn stars. He's not guys. quite as skeptic as Carl, but he has yeah. that same sort of status in, in our culture yeah. right now, I would say, as Carl had in his day. Yeah. But uh, as Avi Loeb said, there could be a whole web of these things, a full-on grid a of communication. web. The, like, the, the, like you said, the... the blockade at the neutral zone yeah or the tholian web the, the the which one was the tholian web oh well, we'll get into it later yeah okay <laughs> you lose me sometimes must but anyway he said there could be a whole web of these things full-on grid of communication satellites all throughout the galaxy that were placed long long ago by some alien race far far away or maybe much closer than that in those days this has led to a new surge in interest from the scientific community in the search for alien life and it looks like we are getting better and better at looking for it. And if we find it, what will that mean for us as a species? And what will it mean if we don't? 
Mm. Some important questions there. To understand where this new theory of looking for alien life closer to home rather than trying to find them on their own planets of origin comes from, we have to discuss John von Neumann's famous astronomical theory, which has come to be known as von Neumann probes. Because there's more than one with him. John von Neumann's getting a Mad Cujo's award right now, by the way. Mad Cujo's. Why did he get the Mad Cujo's? Because these von Neumann probes are some serious supervillain sort of stuff, Moz. Thanos would love these things. Yeah. He would definitely find some use for them. Because they build each other. Right. But they can't, you don't know how to stop it. It could just take over the galaxy. Isn't that the downside? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, we're going to get into those. I'm going to explain those very deeply in the next episode, which will be part four of this probe series. Mm-hmm. This is the end of part three, unfortunately. It's not the end of three. We didn't do my Ahu Guano theory. Oh, right. You have an Ahu Guano for us. Real quick. Yeah, please. I, I'm saving those because it's another two-parter. I'm going to do the full-on segments at the end of the next one to really wrap oh, all this okay. up. But I would love to have you do an Ahu Guano for us this week, Moss. Oh, no. Here it comes. Quick. To the batshit signal. Again, Douglas Adams was right. Our crazy planet just drove itself into the neutral zone. Who is the captain of this thing? <laughs> we just blundered into danger as a our spaceship Earth here. It is definitely one of the paths your brain goes down listening to this episode is what did we just stumble into? Yeah. Like, what did we just set off? Yeah. Who is coming? Yeah. <laughs> what are we headed toward? What did we step in? I really, I, I find solace in Avi Loeb. And when you read the book, you kind of get the idea that it really was kind of his at least final working hypothesis when he wrote the book that he really does believe it was manufactured, that it was of some sort of alien technology. But again, the but wind, it wasn't operating. It was too. It was old and and just derelict and floating around out there doing nothing. And I guess the reason for that is they always say we we would have a tough time coming to two civilizations that could talk to each other because they're always at different levels of uh, going up, going down, ending, starting. Right. And this is just one of those things that could have been set a million years ago. I was just sitting out there. And even the, I mean, the fact that the forms of communication can be so different. Like, what if, you know, the first aliens we find communicate telepathically with each other because they have, you know, the the physical, physiological makeup to do so. And when we meet them, we start talking and they're like, yeah, what, what's this weird thing these, these creatures are doing? And they literally have no concept of what our language is. We have no way of hearing or conceiving their language. They have no way of understanding ours. Like where does it go? This is why in sci-fi and with all the scientists looking for this stuff and everything, they all, it all comes down to those first contact sort of situations. It's all going to be math. Mm-hmm. It's going to be pictures and math. But this is also Drawing why this designs and advanced, you know, advanced geometry kind of stuff. But this is also why the sci-fi channel is a lie. Well, yeah, it's, it's science fiction. Yeah, they, they do. They do admit that in the title. It's science fiction. So, but you know, a lot of great ideas. Look back at science fiction. So many great ideas, and like guys who were writing science fiction back in the day, that now they're looking at how things actually work, and they're like, 
damn, those authors actually kind of knew what they were talking about. Yeah. There's a lot like, of insight. Today's science fiction is tomorrow's science. Like yeah. it's been that way since science fiction became a thing. I so. think Stargate is real. So just gotta find we just gotta figure it out, man. It's it this stuff is the same thing. See, our our paths do cross here, Moz. Because like the, all this technology stuff I'm talking about, this UFO, alien technology, warp drives and light sails and everything, it's kind of the same thing we talk about with the shamanism. There's a power out there that we just have to learn how to harness. And once we harness it, we have no more limits. We become a shapeshifter as a species if we learn how to travel faster than light. If, if we find that zero point stuff, like I've been talking about in other segments that we literally do the event horizon thing and fold space and we're in Alpha Centauri not in 20 years but in 20 seconds. Yeah. 20 minutes, whatever. I mean, we we are not the same species anymore. Nope. Like we are a different creature yeah. in, in this universe once we hit that point from now. That's one of those big filters we go through. If our species can actually attain that sort of power of just travel we can literally like think of the advances in social media think well just <laughs> just <laughs> material collection hey there's an asteroid over there that's got all of this you know all kinds of stuff we need to make all the stuff we want to make okay jump over there grab it jump back yeah it's and endless. we just and we no, just put it endless. in orbit as a moon and we harvest it yeah you know, there's they've already located asteroids out there that would be worth more than the entire economy of the planet mm. because of the materials in them. If we actually had the power to just be like, okay, we're going to go grab that. We'll be back tomorrow. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> changes everything. everything. Yeah. On every level. Everything. On every level, we are different species. And, and Earth becomes basically just one of our starships because we're going to be bouncing around to all these places and being able to do all this stuff like even our concept of what earth is would change like everything would change it's really heavy stuff yeah really heavy this is why we need a podcast mom <laughs> we should get one of those yeah we could get to like 20 episodes i betcha i bet we could get 25 even dang yeah we have that many written i think let's go for a hundred i'm down that was the initial plan do 100 episodes see if anyone's listening yeah <laughs> this is like seti not seti so you guys have like 80 more episodes to tell all your friends and make sure we have a following by the end of those 100 episodes or else we'll probably just keep doing it <laughs> there that's a threat that's that's the worst threat i can come up with in the moment <laughs> well what about wolfman paul we, we like it we like doing this that's true we want to so, keep doing it well no i'm so saying like share like like share subscribe follow download rate review blah, blah, blah. Burp, burp, burp. but uh yeah we'll leave it at that this is a part one we will be back next week with part two and the final wrap-up or i should say part two of this two-parter part four of the overall alien probe saga which will be the wrap-up episode for this whole arc it's going to get interesting we just keep getting weirder and we're going to get into us as the aliens which is really cool but anywho, uh, we're going to go record the side trail now, and we'll be getting that out some point soon after this. We will see you next week. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Till then, have a good one, listener.
Monster Lore Tour Podcast. Kind of unnatural. Speaking of unnatural. 